Ulrich was born in a small Swiss village on January the 4th, 1484. He studied theology at Basel and Berlin, where humanist teachings were thriving, particularly at this time. He then went on to study at the University of Vienna, where he received a Master of Arts in 1506. He would become a priest in the village of Glarus, where he continued his humanist study. Humanists at the time weren't like humanists today. Humanists at the time were ones who were wanting to study the Bible and to know God's Word better. By the time he had reached Zurich in 1518, he had memorized all of Paul's letters in the original Greek. When he became priest in Zurich in 1518, he had already reached many of the same conclusions of Martin Luther and many of the other Protestant reformers. However, Ulrich would often claim that he did, was not a disciple of Luther, nor did he come to these conclusions from Luther, but rather through his own study of God's word, he came to the same conclusion. Ulrich was both a pastor and a patriot. He was a theologian and a politician. He fought with passion. Even today, outside of Zurich, Switzerland, stands a statue of Ulrich Zwingli. In one hand, he has a Bible, and the other, he has a sword. To demonstrate the passion by which he preached and taught. One theologian said of him that no one preached Solus Christus more strongly than he. One example of this comes in the 77 articles that Zwingli wrote. He said this, The summary of the gospel is that our Lord Christ, true Son of God, has made known to us the will of his heavenly Father and has redeemed us from death and reconciled us with God by his guiltiness. Therefore, Christ is the only way of all who were and now and shall be. In other words, Zwingli had a vision of a preeminent Christ. A Christ who is supreme overall, and particularly supreme in salvation. One of the things that would influence Zwingli and his theology, contrary to the Roman Catholic Church, was this particular passage we're studying this morning. He would argue, how is it that a successor of Peter could be the head of the church if Jesus himself is her head? Friends, this is the truth we want to consider this morning. What we want to be captivated by is the man named Jesus, who is both the creator of the cosmos, but our redeemer this morning. Well, friends, we've been studying through this short letter to the church in Colossae over the last number of weeks. And Paul here in this letter gives reasons why, as he begins, why this young church should give thanks to God. He began the letter by giving thanks to the Father for their faith. They, had a, they were known for their faith. They were known for their love. Their pastor had traveled to Rome and visited Paul there in prison and reported to Paul about how faithful they were, how loving they were. And so Paul gave thanks to God for the evidence of the gospel in their life. And then, then as we considered last week, he began to pray for them and prayed particularly that they would come to know the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. And we considered last week how our desire as Christians is to know God better, to know Him more deeply, that we might worship Him, that we might submit to Him. Well, as Paul rounds out that prayer and begins to have his mind taken up with the idea that God has reconciled man through the death of Christ, as he, as he gave us this picture of being uh, freed from slavery to sin, and how we've been 
captive by Christ and how we've been transferred into His kingdom, Paul then launches into a a song, into a hymn. And that's what we're going to consider this morning, the Christ hymn of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. This perhaps is the most high point in all of the scriptures of the person of Jesus Christ. So let me commend it to you. Let me commend its deep study to you. Let me commend you, maybe even after uh, at lunch today, thinking about what this particular hymn is teaching us about Christ. Well, I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1, if you've not turned there already. If you're not accustomed to looking at the Bible, um, open it to 983. It should be somewhere about there in the pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, let that be our gift to you. Uh, Let me just commend you to reading of it, thinking about it, and ordering your life after it. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Friends, this morning we want to consider this point. It's a very simple point. It's a, it's a very straightforward point. It's a very clear point that Jesus Christ is preeminent over all things. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is the first. He is the supreme one. He is number one. He is the reason for all things. All things were created by him and for him. Therefore, he is worthy of our praise and must be first in every aspect of our life. If Jesus is the preeminent one, If it is true that he is the high and lifted up one, he is the reason for all things, then our lives ought to be ordered in such a way that he's first in our life. So this morning, the question I have for you that I want you to think about as I move through this text, is Jesus first in every aspect of your life? Does Jesus get the first of every aspect? of your life. This is what we want to think about this morning. Is he the the supreme one in our lives? Well, Paul gives us here in this passage really two main reasons why Christ Jesus is preeminent. So if you're looking at your Bible, we could divide this this hymn into two parts. First, verses 15 through 17. Jesus is Lord over creation. That's Paul's idea here. He, He demonstrates to us that Jesus is Lord over creation. Then, in verses 18 through 20, the second half of the hymn uh, parallels the first half 
in displaying that Jesus is not only Lord of the old creation, but that Jesus is Lord over the new creation, over the church. Jesus is Lord over creation, and he is Lord over the new covenant people, the church. So these are the two points we want us to consider this morning, that Jesus is preeminent. Number one, we see here in verses 15 through 17 that Jesus is Lord over creation. He was not created. He's not a created being. He's not the first of God's creation, but rather he is the creator. He is the one by whom God created the cosmos. We see a number of aspects of this truth here. First, we see that he, Jesus, reveals the divine through creation. Look there in verse 15. The he there is a reference back to verse 13. He has delivered us, that is God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, this is verse 13, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. The he there being the son, Jesus Christ. This is who we're talking about here, that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, what does Paul mean that, that God is invisible? Well, that God cannot be seen. No one has ever seen God or known God. But we see Jesus. Paul's point is that Jesus of Nazareth was the perfect image of God. He revealed God to us. Where God was unseen, now he is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what he goes on to say, that he is the image. To be the image of something is to to be the mere reflection of. Jesus isn't just part God, he is fully God. Or as uh, R.C. would say, he is truly God, as we confessed earlier in the Ligonier Statement. He is truly God and truly man. Or as John reveals to us in John chapter 1, verse 18, we have seen the glory, glory is of the only Father, full of grace of truth. How did we see him? Well, we saw him through the Son. One author says that as the image of God, Christ is an exact as well as visible representation of God, illuminating God's essence. Another author would go on to say this, to say that Christ is the image of God is to say that in him the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed, that in him the the invisible has become visible. A great way to summarize this verse, verse 15, is this, if you want to see God, look no further than Jesus. If you want to see God, look no further than Jesus. The first half of this verse here tells us of Jesus' relationship to God, doesn't it? That Jesus' role within the Godhead is to be the face, to be the front, to be the one who reveals God's character and his person. Jesus is the visible representation of God. If you want to see him, look no further than Jesus. But notice here also the verse goes on. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Whereas the first tells us of Jesus' relationship to God, the second half of this verse tells us of Jesus' relationship to creation. Now, one might read that and say, well, okay, if he's the firstborn, does that mean that Jesus was born? I mean, the Christ, the Son of God, was born? Not at all. This, the, the point of this isn't to talk about Jesus having a birthday, all right? 
Like, we need to squash that whole idea. Don't lead your kids awry by singing happy birthday to Jesus, all right? That just confuses them, all right? Jesus is the eternal, pre-existent one. This is what Paul is arguing here in verse 15. He's the firstborn over creation in that, not that he was created, but pertaining to having a special status. Perhaps in your family, the firstborn is the one who gets all the, the credit, the one who's always praised. It's the firstborn that gets the big celebration, right? Well, we, we know this a bit in the Bible when, um, of the story of the prodigal son, right? It was the elder son that was all jacked up and upset, right? Because the younger brother was getting praise, more praise than the, than the elder brother. Well, here in this particular passage, Jesus, the point that is being made is that Jesus is preeminent over creation. That Jesus isn't the first act of creation, but rather, as we'll see, that Jesus is the creator. And if Jesus is the creator, then of course Jesus isn't the created. Rather, he is the one who precedes it. This, of course, is what Paul goes on to write then in verse 16. For by him all things were created. But friend, if you just have a, a little sense of the English language there, you, you get to capture the idea. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created. All things. All things means all things, friend. It means everything. Everything was created by Jesus. Jesus wasn't created. Rather, he was the created. It, it, the, the idea here is he was the instrument by which God created the cosmos. It was Jesus of Nazareth, the, the eternal Son of God, who created the world. And therefore, is the one who is supreme over and reconciler of all things. You see, the main idea of this text is reconciliation. How is it that Jesus can reconcile God and man? Because he is the God-man. He is the great uniter of the two. Well, he goes on to sort of fit this whole text. One might be sitting in the back thinking, okay, what is it that Jesus created? What is it that he created? Did he create all things? Well, I'm not sure what all things mean. Well, look what he says, verse 16. Well, he created all things. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The use of these four sort of near synonyms is really to demonstrate and emphasize the extent of Christ's domain. Whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities... The idea isn't to talk about four distinct groups, but rather to say that he is head over all things. Friend, it don't matter what happens in Washington, all right? Jesus is king. It don't matter what happens in some European country or, or, or some Eastern European. It doesn't matter, friend. Jesus is Lord over all things. Not one molecule, you understand moves apart from his sovereign will. Not one thing. There is no radical molecule out there in the cosmos doing something that Jesus isn't giving authority over to. 
And the point here Paul is making is that Jesus is the agent who created. But more than that, not only was it created through him, but look at what it says there in verse 16. It was created for him. There was purpose in the creation. Our created world has purpose. The purpose is to give Jesus the glory. Jesus was the reason God created. It was for his advantage and for his glory. And the idea here that we want to take away is that Jesus is the supreme ruler over all creation because he created all things. It's one of authority. The creator gets to decide what the creation is and does. The creator does. Jesus was the creator. He was the one who made this world, and he is the one, as we'll see, who will recreate this world. Because Jesus' world was perfect. It was without sin, without blemish. As we learn in Genesis chapter 1, that it was good. But we know, as the story unfolds, that the creation didn't stay good, but that his chief creation, man, rebelled against him in choosing to live life their own way. Adam and Eve said, we think we can do life better than you, God, and so we're going to go our own way. And God had promised them that if you go your own way, you shall surely die. And they did. Death entered the world through one man's sin. But there is a new man, a new Adam, one who is supreme over the first creation, and as we'll see, who is supreme over the old creation, or the new. But Paul goes on here, doesn't he? Not only is Jesus the creator, but as I alluded to just a moment ago, he is the sustainer. He is the sovereign sustainer of all things. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It appears as we look at the context of this particular verse that Paul is helping us think about who the Son is, right? Now remember the context. He's telling us he's already prayed that we would know God better. It's like, okay, I want to know God better. I want to know him better. I want to know his character. I want to know about him. And, And what he does is he leads us to know the Son of God. And he says, listen, you're now in the kingdom of the Son. And you're like, all right, cool, that's great. I'm in God's kingdom. I'm in the kingdom of Jesus. I'm I'm in the Son's kingdom. And you begin to wonder what this kingdom is going to be like. What is this going to look like? How is this going to impact my everyday life? And, And Paul comes to us and says, all right, let me tell you about this Son. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. To say it in the words of Jesus, uh, I am a shepherd. And I am the door to the sheepfold. No one gets into my sheep pen except for through me. I'm the keeper of the sheep. And the Father has given me some sheep, and, and they're mine. And, and I have this responsibility to keep them and hold them. And all that the Father gives to me comes to me, Jesus says in John chapter 6. And I'll cast none of them away, but I will keep them and hold them. There'll be other shepherds come along. There'll be others that pretend. But I am the door. This gives a lot more meaning, doesn't it? In other words, Jesus, how good are you at running the universe? 
How good are you at being the preeminent one? And and Paul wants to emphasize this point, that he is the sustainer of all things. Everything is held together by him. He is the glue that keeps the universe from grinding to a halt. If Christ were to cease to hold together, the universe would cease to exist. Without Jesus, you have no universe. And without Jesus, as we'll see in a moment, you have no redemption. You have no new life. Without Jesus, there's nothing. Well, friends, Christians, modern and old, have believed this truth about Jesus, that he is the eternal Son of God. This is what we read earlier in the Ligonier Statement on Christology. We did this with purpose. We read earlier that with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man. Two natures in one person. Or as we read in the Nicene Creed of 325, written some 1,600 years earlier, that and we believe in one Lord, the Son of God, begotten of the Father as only Begotten. That is the essence of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came to be being, both in heaven and in earth. These statements come from these passages, like Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The truth that God created the cosmos through Jesus. That Jesus is supreme over all things because All things exist by him and for him. This verse here that we've considered this morning is the summary of Jesus' creative powers and points to his supremacy over all creation. And friend, it points to this question, is he supreme in your life? Since Jesus is Lord over creation, this truth we cannot argue with do we praise him as Lord overall? Is Jesus primary in our worship? For you recognize, I hope, by now, if you're, you're a, an adult, that worship doesn't happen just in this place. You understand that, right? We worship every moment we're awake. What, you cap, what you're captivated by, what your mind is taken away by is what you worship. If we were to pull out your bank statement and look at where you spend your money, I'll tell you where you worship and what you worship. All things, both individually and corporately, should bring him glory. That's what he says, isn't it? That everything is for him, for his glory, for his praise. Friend, I wonder this morning, is Jesus first in your marriage? Is Jesus first in your family? If we were to ask your kids whether or not Jesus is first, what would they say? Out of the, babe, out of the mouth of babes, right? Is Jesus first in your finances? In the way you spend your money? Do your non-believing friends know who you worship by how you spend the money you have in your wallet? What about in your educational pursuits? What about in your job? Is Jesus first in those places? Or is Jesus only first when you're around other Jesus followers?
Does Jesus get your first or just your warmed up leftovers? Jesus is the preeminent one, friend. He's preeminent over the first created world because he is the creator of the cosmos. Paul has been growing our thoughts about Jesus, beginning all the way back in verse 13, that we might know God better, the Son of God, the one whom we have redemption through. And therefore, as he, as he leads us through this hymn, as he's, he's leading us, perhaps even early on, singing this in the church, he burst into exaltation. That friend not only is the creator of the, of the old order, but he is the creator of the new world to come. And so the first half focuses on Jesus' supremacy over creation. And let's look now as he shifts in verses 18 through 20 that Jesus is Lord over the church. He goes on to say in this hymn, verse 18, that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Now Paul loves to mix metaphors here, and he does that here. He mixes two metaphors, one of a body and then the other of a a multi-membered assembly. You're like, Paul, What's going on here? Um, He says Jesus is the head of the body. He's the head of the body. Paul pictures here in our mind a a person with a body, and Jesus is the head of that body. What is the idea? Well, that Jesus is the supreme ruler of this body, whatever this body is. Jesus is the one by whom the body moves. You understand, if you don't have a head, you're not alive, right? The head is where that directs the hands and the feet to move. It's the head. Where the head looks. You you learned way back when, right, when you were in driver school, when you're driving down the road, where your head turns, that's where the car goes, right? You look to your, right, you're going to start drifting that way. You go to the, look to the right, you're going to go to the right. You look to the left, you're going to go to the left. You're looking at your kids in the rearview mirror and you want to scream at them, well, that's where you're going to be heading. Jesus is the head. Wherever the head is, that's where the body goes. And, and here Paul says, listen, where is the head going? He's pointing to this reality that Jesus is Lord over his church. Well, he goes on to describe, doesn't he, there in verse 18, who this body is. It's the church, the assembly, the ecclesia, the the gathering together of the redeemed. The new covenant people, to use other language from the Bible, that, that is the people of God. Peter was not the head, nor his successors. There's only one head. His name is King Jesus. And he is the head of this new people, a new people group. The new Israel has created a new people. Not like the old people who rebelled, but these new people whom the Spirit of God lives in. He's the covenant people of God, the redeemed of all the ages, gathered into one body, both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, Scythian, barbarian, as he says in chapter 3, verse 10. What is he doing here? Well, the Apostle Paul in this verse is contrasting in our minds the old creation and the new creation. And he's pointing forward this idea, he's he's driving at this idea that Jesus is creator of both the old and the new. Now for us, we might think, well, of course he is. What we want to think about is what that means for our lives together. Well, he goes on to say that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. 
As this creator of the new created people, he points us forward to this idea that as the creator, he is the creator of the new creation. In that, he is the first from the dead. The resurrection Christ signals the beginning of God's new redemptive plan. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, this signaled that there was a new plan. People ask me sometimes, hey, are we in the end times? Are we in the end? Is this, is this it? Is this the end times? I'm like, friend, we've been in the end times since Jesus got out of a grave in Israel. It signaled a new era of God's redemptive plan. If you, he's been redeemed, calling sinners to life for thousands of years. What does this mean? It means that all things are under his rule and authority, and particularly in the church. This is another way of saying that redemption is only possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some might ask, do I have to believe in the resurrection of the dead to be a Christian? My friend, you're not alive if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, spiritually. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You understand, you cannot have justification with God apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You put aside the resurrection of Christ, you put aside the whole gospel. The security of our justification is in the reality of Christ's resurrection, that he was the first from the tomb. And friends, this gives us hope. That Jesus supplies his body with all the nourishment and sustenance that is needed to persevere as a healthy body. Jesus Christ has inaugurated through his resurrection a new creation. New, not old, not renewed, new. By which he is the head over all new creatures. So this morning, if you are a Christian, Christ is your head. The very act of coming to faith in Christ is acknowledging that I am no longer going to live life my way. That is what the Bible means when it says repent. It means to stop living life your way and go God's new way through Christ. That's what we're inviting you to do as Christians. We're not inviting you to go our way or this church's way or our denomination's way. What we're inviting you to do through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is to stop living life your way. It's messed up. You failed. So did we. We learned a long time ago we're really, really bad at living life, all right? We make a mess of things because we're sinners. But only when we stop and go God's way through Christ and follow him, then we truly live. And that's what Paul is pointing us towards in this text, that in everything he might be preeminent, preeminent in life and preeminent in death. And this is again why Paul drives us forward in verse 19 to remind us that in Jesus is life. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is truly God and truly man. The fullness of God dwells in the person of Christ. To follow Jesus is to follow God. 
He is the visible expression of God, as we considered a moment ago. The supremacy of Jesus Christ is grounded in the reality that he is both fully God and fully man. Next week, we're going to consider that Jesus, through his death, reconciled us to God. Well, how did he do that? Well, he did that because he was our representative before God. The infinite God paid the infinite payment for our sin. That ought to give us confidence to know that, hey, it's actually really paid for. God didn't send a man to do a, God that, a job that only God could do. F.F. F. Bruce says it this way, The totality of divine essence is power is, resi- is resident in Christ. He is the one, all-sufficient, intermediary between God and the world of humanity. And all the attributes of God, his spirit, word, wisdom, and glory are disclosed in him. Or as we read in the Baptist faith and message, that he ascended into the heaven is now exalted at the right hand of God the Father, where he is the one mediator, fully God, fully man, in whose person is effected the reconciliation between God and man. Only through him can we be reconciled to God. And finally, we see that as head over the church, that he is the victor over sin and death. He is the one who made victory through death, where it looked as if the enemy had won, as if the enemy had finally vanquished the powers of Christ, as if Satan stood over that grave and said, I finally defeated the Creator. I finally done the unthinkable. I have outsmarted the one who formed my substance. And Jesus is like, no, you didn't. And he rose again to display that through the cross, he was the victor, not the defeated. This is what Paul writes to us in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is head of the church. But is he the head of this church? If we're to be a healthy church, a gospel church, a biblical church, we must first recognize this simple point. This is Christ's church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's not the deacon's church. It's not whoever's church they think it is. It's not the community's church. Jesus Christ died for this church. Jesus Christ sought to put a lamp stand in this place in 1918 for His glory, not ours. And how dare we decide how Christ's church will be ran? Do you really think that Jesus would leave his bride to our own ingenuity, our own creative ways? Do you think that the creator of the cosmos would actually leave this ship in the hands of a bunch of sinners? Not at all. He gave us his word, though that we might order ourselves according to his standard, not our own. And friend, here's the point we must see. 
that until we as a congregation come to a place whereby we recognize, organize, and prioritize Jesus' supremacy over this place, we will never ever be a biblical church. We can put church out on the sign out front. We can call ourselves a church. But until Jesus is head, we're not a church. Until Jesus rules in our hearts, in our thinking, in our attitudes, we will never grow spiritually. One of the things we must do is confess anew that Jesus is king. That we're going to do things his way and not our way. That he is the supreme Lord over the church. And friend, as we think about this reality, it ought to give you comfort. How how can we know that we are truly saved? How can we know that that God can deliver us from, from slavery to sin? How can we know for sure? Right here. And Jesus is Lord over the created and the new created. Jesus is not only creator, but he is redeemer. Is Jesus first in your worship? Is Jesus first in your life? Is he preeminent over all aspects of your life? Abraham Cowper once wrote that there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Friend, Jesus is in control of your life whether or not you recognize it or not, whether you submit to it or not. And as Christians, we draw comfort over the fact that though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, though we walk through, through dark clouds, Jesus has led us there. Jesus will lead us through because he's supreme over all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we trust that your Son is the eternal Son, truly God and truly man. He is the creator God. He is the sustainer God. He is almighty. He is the high and lifted up one. He is the resurrected and ascended Lord. And Jesus, we cry out to you now, and as we'll sing in just a moment, that we surrender everything to you. We give it all to you. It's all yours. We give our life to you. You're the potter. We're the clay. Make us, mold us, shape us. Do, do whatever it is. Your will be done in our life. Please, Lord. 